So I don't know if you've noticed, but I like to talk to people. In, in fact, it's kind of a running joke that it would be a whole lot easier to get church started on time if I didn't like all of you people quite so much. <laughs> you see Kathy looking at her watch when we got up into the choir? <laughs> right? But as a group, we all like to talk to each other, right? I mean, in fact, someone just remarked to me last Sunday how good it is to see people talking and laughing and fellowshipping before the service starts. And how, how great it is to have the fellowship hall so full of people after the service. And that wouldn't happen if we didn't all enjoy spending time together, would it? Spending time with each other in fellowship. But, you know, if we were really honest with ourselves, we don't always get that same kind of feeling when it comes to spending time with God. Spending time, like I was telling the kids, talking with them and, and listening to him and fellowship with him in prayer. And, you know, that must be the problem for a lot of folks because there are, are books and, and tapes and conferences and websites by the millions out there giving people advice on how to pray. In fact, ju just type in the word prayer in an Internet search engine like I did earlier this week, and depending on which one you use, you're going to find anywhere from 75 million to 100 million different articles on prayer. That's a lot. And there, there's, there's listings for sites about books and periodicals and types of prayer. Right? If you think about it, every major world religion has some form of prayer. New Age gurus are out there ready to uh, help you meditate and, and connect in prayer with the divine. And then there's the, the news stories about cities and, and counties and townships trying to regulate when and how we can pray when people are gathered together at public meetings. And I'm sure you already know that, by and large, most school boards have completely outlawed prayer in the classroom. Although I heard uh, one author say that as long as there are math tests, there will always be prayer in school. And, and as Christians, we know how important prayer can be, right? And yet, if we're honest, a lot of time, prayer for us is a source of confusion and mystery. Confusion not only with questions concerning what to pray and how to pray, but also with wondering whether or not prayer even makes a difference. With wondering, why does God seem silent so much of the time in our prayer? Or maybe, why does God seem to answer prayers for, for some folks and not for others? And when we find ourselves on the receiving end over and over again of unanswered prayers, we have to ask ourselves, how do we understand both the value of prayer, and the God who loves us and desires to meet with us in conversation. You know, that can be a difficult situation. Just like for the, the ship's captain who, on uh, discerning that his ship had collided with an iceberg and his boat was about to sink, he called out to the crew, does anybody know how to pray? One man confidently spoke up and said, yes, captain, I do. The captain said, good, and he patted the man on the back and said, all right, then you go ahead and pray, and the, the rest of us are going to put on the life vest because it seems we're one short. But, you know, pr prayer isn't easy for everyone, is it? Part of the trouble is too many messages and books on prayer try to lay a guilt trip on us for not praying enough. Right? I've even been guilty of that, like the time that I shared with you how Martin Luther has said that uh, he was so busy every day that he had to spend his first three hours in prayer every morning. He said he was so busy 
with the work of the Reformation, he spent his first three hours in prayer every morning. Like somehow that was going to motivate you to get out of bed at 3 a.m. and start praying. Well, guess what? It didn't work for me either. So I don't want this message to imply in any kind of way that I have it all together when it comes to prayer or to increase your guilt. But I do want all of us, all of us to learn how to pray rightly and maybe how to be motivated to pray a little bit more often. And to do that, I want to focus on a prayer request that the Apostle Paul made in our scripture reading today. And it comes to us from Romans chapter 15. If you're just joining us today for the first time, we've been taking an extensive look through the book of Romans for quite a while now, and we're getting close to the end. And as he's getting to the end of this letter, Paul is going to give us a prayer request that I want to share with you. This is chapter 15, beginning in verse 23. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Paul writes, but now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Acacia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel that the least they can do in return is to help them financially. As soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. And I am sure that when I come, Christ will richly bless our time together. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because of your love for me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I'm taking to Jerusalem. Then by the will of God, I will be able to come to you with a joyful heart, and we will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God, who gives us his peace, be with you all. And Paul wrote, Amen. Now, in his letters, as I was saying, the Apostle Paul often asked for prayer because he was constantly aware of his desperate need for God to work in his efforts if the gospel was going to be effective. And that's exactly what he's doing in this text. He's asking those Roman Christians if they would pray for him, pray for his ministry and for his sermons and his work. In fact, one commentator has written, not only has God made the accomplishment of his purposes hang on the preaching of the word, but he's also made the success of that preaching hang on prayer. Did you get that? God has not only made the accomplishment of his purposes depend on pastors that preach the word, but he's made the success of that preaching hang on prayer. The earnest, faith-filled prayers of God's people. I know several of you have shared with you that you pray for me, and I, I, I genuinely appreciate that, and I hope all of you. We need people who are praying for the Lord's work, praying for the Lord's work with the right motivation and the right mindset and the right understanding and a right relationship with God. And, and I want to take a look at kind of all of those elements of prayer with you briefly today, beginning in verse 30 that we looked at that said, Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. And Paul says, I, I urge you. The English Standard translation says, I appeal to you. Other versions say, I implore you. Paul admits that he's got some real concerns. He knew that he would face serious opposition when he reached Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit had already warned him he was going to receive 
not such a warm welcome when he got into the, the land of the Jews. He knew that was coming. He knew that among the believers in Jerusalem, too, that many were prejudiced against his ministry to the Gentiles. He knew they might not accept the gift of financial help that he was bringing to them because it was from Gentiles. And so he urges the Roman believers to pray for two things, that he would be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that his service for the people of Jerusalem, namely that gift that he's bringing, would be accepted by the church. And I think, it, at least for me, that his request here for prayer is all the more significant when you consider that Paul was one of the most gifted and godly men who's ever lived. I mean, if there was anybody who you could say basically had it all together, right, it was the Apostle Paul. He was bold. He was outspoken. He was confident. He was on fire for the kingdom. But at the same time, he didn't try to come off as if he didn't have any needs or concerns. No, instead, Paul freely and repeatedly let the church know that he desperately needed their prayers. Because for Paul, prayer wasn't something just nice to do. It was a necessity. Paul was telling the, the Roman Christians and telling us today, too, not just to pray simply because he asked us to. But Paul urges us to pray, as that verse said, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that we bring our specific needs and concerns and present them as an appeal to Christ's authority in all of our circumstances. Like, for instance, if you've ever had to, uh, an issue to deal with or resolve with a, a bank or a large company, you know if you try to go through a lower-level customer service person, your chances of getting what you're after are pretty slim, right? You just take the first guy that answers the phone. But if you happen to know someone in a position of authority, if you know someone, you can go directly to him or her, and you've got a much better chance of getting what you called for, right? Well, as Christians, we can go directly to the God of the universe by the authority of his son. We know what authority he has. Remember, when Jesus gave the great commission before he ascended into heaven, he said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So that doesn't leave any other place where Jesus doesn't have authority, right? Which means we can pray to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ with confidence that he has not only the power but the authority to answer all of our prayers in accordance with his will. You know, one of the last times we met together, Dr. Buddy was kidding around with me that he was going to buy a plaque from my desk that says the buck stops here. And, and we, we laughed about it, but, you know, I, I'm so thankful that the place where the buck really stops is at the throne room of heaven. And that you and I, who are children of the king, have not only access, but the invitation to bring all of our cares and our concerns to him and to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, which he provides. And that's the next reason Paul uses to motivate us to pray. He said to the Roman readers of this letter, he says, I want you to pray because of your love for me that was given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? If you love people, you're going to pray for them, right? If you love your kids, you're going to pray for them because you love them. You pray for for your family members, even if they frustrate you sometimes because you love them, right? Look at her laughing. You don't, you don't frustrate her, do you, Lynn? No. If you care about someone's eternal salvation, you pray for them. If you care about a couple who are struggling in their marriage, you pray for them. If you care about injustice and poverty and crime in the world, you don't just throw up your hands in despair. No, you, you raise up your hands in prayer and cry out to God and get in the middle of the battle. Get into the fight. 
And that's important because, brothers and sisters, to pray rightly, we need to understand that prayer is warfare. Prayer is warfare. And Paul urges the Roman Christians, he says, join my struggle by praying to God for me. Because you see, Paul was already striving in prayer for this upcoming trip to Jerusalem, but he's asking the Roman Christians to join him in battle. And he's teaching them and us that our communication with God is a whole lot more than the modern-day name-it-and-claim-it theology of the prosperity gospel that's out there. You know, whose supposed Bible teachers say things like, if you're struggling, you must not be resting in Christ. If you're sick, you must not have enough faith to get well. If you don't have a new house and a new car, you aren't sowing enough seeds of faith. But brothers and sisters, that's blasphemy. Because if that was true, then that would mean Paul needed to learn a bunch of stuff from those guys, right? Because he was honest. He said he struggled. He wrestled. He fought. And for you and me today, that means if you don't find prayer to be easy, welcome to the genuine Christian life. Because Paul says it requires striving and wrestling against the forces of darkness and against the desires and the comforts of the flesh. In fact, in one of his books, John Piper wrote, our prayers are often ineffective because we wrongly view it as calling for a butler to bring us another glass of tea, rather than rightly viewing it as a walkie-talkie to call in more supplies and ammunition to the front lines of a battle. In other words, our prayers should be not focused on trivial things to make us more comfortable, but rather on crucial things to advance the cause of Christ against the enemy. That's why Paul wrote, pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I'm taking to Jerusalem. You know, this request teaches us two things. First, that although God is sovereign and omnipotent, he chooses to work through secondary means. And one of the ways he does that is to exercise his power through our prayers. You know, Paul assumes that in response to his prayer and the prayers of these Roman Christians, he's asking for that God can restrain the rebellious and hard-hearted Jews from killing him, and that God would work in the hearts of the narrow-minded, self-righteous believers in Jerusalem so that they'll accept the gift the Gentiles are bringing, a gift they badly needed but might have been too proud to accept. And in fact, you know, just because the Romans were over a 1,000 miles away and that they didn't know the people that they were praying for didn't make any difference because Paul knows and we know that God is in both places, right? That he had the power to restrain sinners and change the hearts of believers according to the counsel of his own good pleasure as he promises to work out all things after the counsel of his will. And Paul wants us to understand that, that God uses our prayers as a part of that process. He doesn't need us, but he uses us but also to realize that God is sovereign in how and when he answers those prayers that we bring to him. And then we read, then by the will of God, I'll be able to come to you with a joyful heart and we will be an encouragement to each other. And now with that, you might, you might ask, well, you know, if God is sovereign, what's the use of praying? What's the point? And the answer is, it is that same sovereign God who not only invites us, but commands us to pray. So in other words, just like I tell the kids, why do I have to do that? Because dad said so, right? Why do we pray? Because God commanded us. The other thing Paul is teaching us here is we have to understand that there is more to prayer than just intercession and, and supplication. There's more to it than just praying for our own needs and the needs of others. 
give you a quick example. The uh, Evangelical and Reformed Association, Pastoral Association that I'm part of, together as a group are reading and studying through the book of Psalms. And, you know, when you read the Psalms, you, you read a lot about intercession, you read a lot about supplication to God, but overwhelmingly what we're finding and reading there is adoration and worship and confession and joyful thanksgiving. So you take those elements of prayer and you begin to use them and what happens to a person who learns to adore God? That person's changed. What happens to a person who learns how to express their gratitude to God? That person will now become more aware of the hand of providence in their life and will grow in the sense of joy and gratitude toward God. In fact, I heard someone say just yesterday, dare to thank God for nothing and he may give you more. Dare to thank God for nothing and he may give you more. And when we do that, we're naturally encouraged. We're encouraged to trust God. And we're encouraged, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, to keep a short account with the Father when it comes to falling into sin and into doubt, confessing our sins and seeking his forgiveness. So with all of those things together in the long run, who does prayer really change? God or me? The answer is me. I'll help you with the hard one. The answer is me. Can our request change God's sovereign plan? Of course not. When God sovereignly declares that he's going to do a particular thing, all the prayers in the world are not going to change God's mind. But the balance to that is that God not only ordains the ends, the conclusions of what he plans, he ordains the means to that end. And the process he uses to bring about his sovereign will is through the prayers of us, his people. That's why we pray. We pray with the right understanding, and when we do that, prayer is powerful. But God's will is also sovereign in every outcome he brings about. And finally, we pray in a right relationship. Brothers and sisters, God loves us, and he loves to communicate with us. And you know, if that's not your experience, then the truth is it's us who have made it awkward and not God. In Jesus Christ, we're invited to come boldly into his presence, not arrogantly, but confidently comfortably. And you don't have to do it at any certain time of day or with a certain posture. You don't have to, to bow or you don't have to bring particular words. You just come. And when I was working on that, I stumbled across a, a 19th century poet by the name of Samuel Walter Foss, who you might know. He wrote a piece called The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. Anybody heard that? Okay, I hadn't either. So here we go. This way he wrote. He said, the proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. Nay, I would say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped upturned eyes. No, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be astutely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said the Reverend Hunt. Last year, I fell in Hodgkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown. With both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right there and then, the best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed a-standing on my head. So it doesn't matter how you come. It doesn't matter how you come, you just come. To the Father's throne where there is, is grace and forgiveness and mercy and healing. And more than that, there's peace. In fact, that's how Paul closed this letter. He said, 
And now may God who gives us his peace be with you all. Did you know verse 33 here is Paul's benediction? It's his benediction for the Romans, for of all things, peace. And when you look at that, you have to kind of wonder, what in the world did the Roman Christians ever know about peace? When did they ever experience it? You know, even though the Roman Empire was undoubtedly one of the most powerful and technologically advanced and literate societies of its time, it was also one of the most violent and cruel and decadent. And when Paul was writing this letter, he had no way of knowing, and he's writing it in the late 50s AD, that within a very short period of time that the Roman Emperor Nero would begin a wholesale persecution of the Christian church. So we have to ask ourselves, how were those Romans supposed to find peace, and how in the world how in the world can we find peace in a society that equals or maybe exceeds Roman corruption and decadence? And the key, the key to it is right in the middle of that verse when Paul says that he prays that we would have not what the world thinks of as peace, but God's peace. God's peace. A peace that looks at the world not through rose-colored glasses, not by denying that the world around us and the heart within us are touched by sin and corruption, not by sticking our head in the sand, but a peace that comes from understanding how much God loves us and the lengths that he went to to redeem us in the person and the work of his son. In fact, that's why Paul says in Philippians, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And you may say, well, pastor, that's really easy to do when I sit here in church. But what do I do all during the week? What do I what do, I do to find peace when, when I, I watch television and I see rising tensions all over the world in Russia and in Iran and in North Korea? How do I find a little of that peace when I lay awake at night worried about a, a doctor's report or an upcoming surgery? How do I find that kind of, that kind of ease and peace of mind when I'm bombarded by stories of a deranged man who methodically rained down a torrent of bullets on an unsuspecting crowd just enjoying a concert. Where's the peace there? Where's, where's God in all of that? How could there be any plan to all of that pain? How could there be any purpose to that suffering? And where do we look for peace when we see the innocent killed? Where do we look? Those are all the real world questions that we wrestle with, right? And they deserve real answers. The trouble is we're not posing the questions in the right way. Because, you know, all the commentators on the left and all the pundits on the right can't answer that question. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks, right? Hollywood celebrities can decry violence and raise money, but they can't rise to an answer. The government can legislate and and regulate and investigate the situations, but they can't mandate a moral solution. Because you see, we're asking all the right questions, we're just not asking them to the right person. And in the midst of all this chaos that swirls around us, God invites us to bring that question to him, to ask, Father, can there be any plan in suffering? Can there be any purpose in pain? And God, where do we find peace when an innocent person is killed? And when we direct those struggles, those questions that we wrestle with, those heartfelt prayers to God, he says here, right here, right here at the cross. I've been here all the time with a plan, 
and a purpose and a peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Amen? You pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you were so willing to send your Son into the chaos of this world to, to rescue us, Father, from the mess that we've made for ourselves. So we ask you to be with us, Lord, as we bring these, these questions, these prayers, these concerns before you, and know, Father, that you've gone ahead of us in all of them. We thank you, Father, for your presence here with us today. And I ask, Lord, if there are any here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, Father, that they would heed the words that I speak on behalf of Christ, that they would repent and believe the gospel, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior, that you would open hearts and open minds, and your name would be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.